0: Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the books editor of The Spectator. And this is just to say that I'm afraid our books podcast is taking a brief summer holiday. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, I do urge you to check out our books and arts coverage in the magazine proper and to revisit some of our classic podcasts as we now think of them, which we'll be putting out in the next couple of weeks to keep you going until our return. Thank you. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the Times columnist Philip Collins, a former speechwriter for Tony Blair, and the author of a new book on political speech writing through the ages called, I have to get this right, When They Go Low. Phil, welcome. Now this book is more than just a collection of famous speeches with, you know, glosses on them. It also kind of presents an argument. I mean, can you tell me what you were trying to do in the book because it seems to me like it's a sort of defense of rhetoric as an art and democracy itself through that
1: it it is it's exactly that I'd realized there are lots of anthologies out there on the market and there's lots of books which collect the great speeches and my first thought was I wanted to analyze the best speeches and work out how they worked and why they're so good and I then realized there was a much bigger story to tell and you find it in Pericles and in Cicero two of speech, uh, the speeches which I look at, the discipline of rhetoric and the form of democracy are born at the same time in Greece. And the democracy becomes the moment when speech becomes necessary because that's then the currency of persuasion. And Cicero in De Oratori unites the two disciplines. For him, rhetoric is not the art of speaking. It's statecraft. It's the very same thing. So I realised that these two things were essentially the same. They, they had parallel histories. And that we're at a moment right now when that great bequest of democracy is under threat from populists. There's a lot of cynicism about politics. And so I thought, I gathered together 25 wonderful speeches which collectively tell the story of change for the better through politics. And so that's the story I tell and that's the defence that I make. It's a defence of rhetoric, but by implication it's also a defence of democracy.
0: And you do also, you, you've sort of divided it into five chunks, which... I was interested in the particular, you know, what caused you to do that.
1: I wanted to to get that story, but tell that story rather obliquely. I didn't want it to be a simple, straightforward narrative. I wanted it to be essayistic. So I wanted the the essays to be able to read things uh, in a standalone way. So what I did is I defined what I think of as five virtues of politics. And they are the idea of the people, the idea of peace prevailing over war, which essentially means war rhetoric, the idea of progress, the idea of the nation and the recognition of belonging, and then finally the idea of revolution and the my preference for incremental politics over the utopian fantasies of the revolutionary. And those five virtues of politics have all found expression in magnificent words. So those were my sort of themes. And they, they overlap to some extent, and there's lots of speeches which which touch on both, and I could have put in other places. But that was the way I organized it, because, again, collectively, that gives you the the full range of what I think is beautiful and precious about a liberal democracy.
0: I mean, the revolution section seems to me to present particularly, as you it's almost like the sort of this is the dark side of it. You know, that's where your villains come in.
1: Absolutely. I wanted not to shy away from the fact that rhetoric is full of villains. And this is there in the history of rhetoric from the very beginning. And the suspicion you get in right back in the classical times, Plato, which Plato exhibits and which Aristophanes satirizes, is a real danger in rhetoric. And so the villains that I look at in particular are Robespierre and the French Revolution. Hitler, the absolutely supreme rhetorical villain, and of a slightly different but nevertheless villainous nature, Castro. Then I have an essay on Mao's rhetoric. And the hero of this book is Camus' figure of the rebel. The rebel who, Camus against Sartre, says that incremental liberal politics, despite being unglamorous, is in fact the only kind of society which anybody would ever consent to live and I used Camus' rebel as a way through because I then answer those three rebels in the final chapter with two speeches, one by Vaclav Havel when he became the uh, president of the Czech Republic and then a magnificent speech by Elie Wiesel at the White House called The Perils of Indifference.
0: That's the that's famous one at the turn of the millennium, isn't that's it? That's
1: right. It's a millennium series. So the Clintons invited a set of people to come and do speeches at, to celebrate the millennium. And, and Wiesel does an extraordinary account of his time in Buchenwald where his father died where he never saw his mother and sister again and his survival and he tells that story and he concludes with the advice that it is perilous if we are indifferent to the fate of others and it is again a beautiful and tragic defense of liberal politics and the free society in which he had the good fortune to find eventually it's a beautiful and moving speech. And that's the last one in the book. And that's where I end up That, with Camus' magnificent insight in The Rebel that democracy's best justification is not what it permits, but what it prevents. It's a barrier against ineluctable tragedy. And that's the sort of profound point you get to with a democracy. And I'm not saying that in Donald Trump or Jeremy Corbyn or Syriza that we're, we're heading towards tyranny. I'm not not saying we're in that position, but that nevertheless, if we don't find words that are elevated to defend our practices, then cynicism can really take root.
0: We can, we can head... And cynicism, as you said, is the sort of gatekeeper for populism. It, it is,
1: it is. I get at that through the idea of utopia, which, like rhetoric, has two sides. This comes all the way from Thomas More, who, in Utopia, has a joke, what passes for a Renaissance joke, because is utopia... Utopia the good place or is it utopia nowhere? And we don't sort of know. What what I take Moore to be doing is he's essentially dramatizing the idea of the Roman Republic. He's dramatizing the idea that virtue in politics comes not from the citizen at leisure, but through active participation. And this idea, the Optimus Status Republicae, which is the subtitle of Moore's book, comes from Cicero, and this is quoted very directly by Thomas Jefferson. Then Kennedy quotes Jefferson in turn, and Obama quotes Kennedy. So you get this running all the way through the founding fathers of America, all the way through American presidential rhetoric. So this idea of the active participation, ask not what your country can do for you, comes all the way from... Cicero, through Thomas More, it's recovered in the Renaissance, into the foundation of the American Republic. And it's the most noble idea of the people, which is threatened directly by the darker side of utopia, the idea of revolutionary fantasy, of which the populist is a kind of benign form. So the the populist believes that he, and it pretty much always is a he, has the secret of the universe unlocked. He knows what the people really want. He can intuit it all. It's a dangerous solution, and I again go back to the demands for slow, incremental, grinding, boring politics. Well, this instead. sort of
0: incrementalist stuff. I mean, does that make you and, and by implication, Albert Camus what they're now calling a centrist dad? Oh, without question.
1: I, I certainly so hope so. I, I like both of those terms. I think so. I mean, I think Camus has rather more claim to glory than I've got because Camus was writing at a time when the National Socialism was and communism were fresh in the memory. In fact. They were still there. And Camus' dispute with Sartre is a brilliant story and metaphor for this whole thing, because Sartre is one of the other villains in the book. Um, his politics were infantile and always prey to the easy solution, which his populists always are. Um, so if I can be bracketed alongside Camus as a centrist dad,
0: I would be delighted. I mean, the book, as you say, it's not very direct in its nowness. I mean, it's clearly written at a time when, as you when you think that there's this loss of faith in rhetoric and loss of faith in democracy. But, you know, there's, there's not too many direct jabs at old Trump or at Corbyn, or, though implicit, particularly in the defence of Tony Blair, is a, is a modern political project. Did you make a conscious decision to keep that sort of stuff down in the mix to prevent the book dating?
1: Yes, I did. I wanted it to be bigger than that. I wanted it to be to, to have some relevance to today but not be confined by Trump. I didn't want Trump to loom too large in it because I didn't want to give him too much weight in the history of rhetoric. It's a bigger story I was trying to tell, of which the current manifestations are one part. The one chapter in which Trump features quite heavily is the first chapter, because in the essay, at the end of the five speeches on the idea of the people, I look at all the speeches that have been done at Gettysburg, and every American president goes to Gettysburg with actually just the one exception. John F. Kennedy was due to go to Gettysburg to do the 100 years anniversary speech, and he had to... Asked Dwight Eisenhower to take his place. Eisenhower lived on a farm in Gettysburg. Kennedy unfortunately had to go down to Dallas from where, he, <laughs> from where he never returned, and Eisenhower did that speech instead. But every Gettysburg address that's been done after Lincoln is a cover version of Lincoln's speech, and it's a sort of praise to the American Republic is a sort of sacrament. Every speech that is until the campaign we just went through where Donald Trump went to Gettysburg and on the site of the Civil War dead, the cemetery, he delivered a 45-minute tirade against the American Republic, against the media. He called Hillary Clinton corrupt and a criminal and it was a really egregious speech. It was terrible to do anywhere, but to go there and do it was, was horrible. And that's as much of a... Strike I have against Trump but, but I, generally I didn't want it to be too contemporary I didn't want it to be journalism you know, I write every week about what's going on in politics but I wanted this to be bigger than that and to try and slot the recent events into a larger frame and I tried to do that with Tony Blair too where some of those speeches I was involved in I have not included a Tony Blair speech in the, in the 25 best speeches ever written, I should add. Although I do have a long analysis of the Chicago speech on yeah. the Interventions of War, which yeah. I didn't write, but I think that's a very notable speech.
0: Yeah, you, you were good in talking about the speeches that, your best speeches that never got delivered, and I think your favourite your favorite is David Miliband's victory speech.
1: I, I have in my drawer at home the victory speech that David Miliband would have delivered had he beaten his brother Ed in 2010, which would have, changed everything, I think. We may well not have left the European Union if that speech had been delivered. David Miliband might have become Prime Minister, who knows where we'd be. That's the best one I've ever wrote that never got delivered.
0: Will you publish it for the historical record?
1: Bits of it have featured. I mean, maybe I should. I mean, it it feels like a period piece already, I have to say, because it's all about the Labour Party conceding some responsibility for economic decline. And in a way, it's a good example of how speeches date quite rapidly. Most political speeches have got a very short sell-by date, and that one has too, really. It was designed for a particular political moment. Not many things survive, and that one won't. But it would have changed politics had it been delivered, and it's a shame it wasn't.
0: If any could pass it on to Ed,
1: well, well, I was I was quite tempted to call Ed on the day actually and, and suggest it to him, but uh, I think the notion that Ed Miliband was delivering his brother's speech would have <laughs> <But that's laughs> would have an ruined answer, his leadership even quicker than it was subsequently ruined anyway.
0: Now, how did you get started writing for Blair, which is where you sort of come in and you lock a stand out for the book? Well,
1: it was. A mixture of accident and design, really. I had always written. I'd had a very peculiar career. I'd done all sorts of things. But the only constant was I'd always liked writing. I'd written a couple of novels. I'd written a play. Uh, but I'd also worked for a member of parliament, Frank Field, my very first job. And so I knew all the people who then, by in 1997 onwards, had become special advisers and junior ministers in the Blair government. So, When Blair needed a speechwriter, I was sort of the person who was there, who had both some sort of political sensibility and also could essentially write. Most people in politics can't write because they are too convinced that they are correct. And they, therefore, are too ready to mouth and repeat the clichés of politics. Whereas if you have any interest in and respect for language at all... Your alarm bells run when people, somebody says hard-working families. You just think, oh, I can't... I, I mean, I apologise for even saying it. It's so awful. And so I had that distance, detachment, from what they called the project, and I never would, that meant I could be a critic, which is the first step to being the writer. So they approached me to, to work for him, and I insisted that I be the speechwriter. They wanted me to do something broader than that, and I absolutely insisted that I wanted the very specific task of being the speechwriter. And It was David Miliband's advice, actually, that I took with very good advice because in Downing Street it's a slightly swirling place where it's difficult to define responsibilities. And if you've got a very precise job, particularly one that nobody else wants, the speechwriter, it means that there's a s- certain section of the world which is yours and yours alone, and that gets you into the meetings. And the currency in Downing Street is, are you in the meetings with the Prime Minister? And as the writer, you're there because you need to listen to how he's talking, what he's thinking, what he's saying. And it was the perfect job for me, and I loved every minute of it.
0: What was he like to write for? I mean, did you try and capture his voice? Did he rewrite heavily?
1: He was very good to write for in the sense that he was very personable and it was always enjoyable. It was fun. We did try to change his voice actually, because the early Blair, you will remember, was without verbs, very short sentences, very clipped. That was never; it was never beautiful, but it had certainly become mocked, and it it served its purpose. So when I joined him, the t- was that, was voice, that was that his voice. that was his voice. Yeah, that was how he wrote. He wrote in very short sentences. His ability, which made him very good to write for, was the capacity to see the point. Go back to Cicero, the topic, or the seat of the argument, Aristotle call, calls it. What Blair was fabulous at, and perhaps it's a lawyer's skill, was he could see in a large, dense set of material the thing that counted. And he'd point to it, and he'd want more on that. And that was a great discipline, because I thought I was quite good at that, and I got, but I got a lot better from his critiques. So to that extent, he was excellent to write for, because he didn't want peripheral arguments. He didn't want what he called purple prose. He wanted it to be plain and quite unadorned. And he would rewrite a bit but not very much, as long as you kept it quite sharp. He didn't like long sentences. He didn't speak in long sentences. So although they might be perfectly euphonious and good for somebody else, he liked it to be very, really quite clipped. I tried many times to drop in literary references. I used to try and sneak in Larkin lines. You know, talent torn off unused I got in once I think it's the only instance really, of a, a, bit, a little bit of larkin in a Blair speech but I tried but he always spotted it and pulled it out
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know Peggy Noonan Reagan's speechwriter, writes in her memoir what I saw in the revolution how the frustration of being at least in the White House you know you'd you'd be the person the speechwriter, would be writing literary stuff and it always went through 11 or 12 iterations of kind of policy people and the State Department one look at it and all this and she was doing what The other's called the woo-woo, the policy people called. And she'd always say, you know, at the famous speech given in China that was on the... I think it was on the Yangtze, wasn't it? That it was a river, and she used the metaphor of river, and the policy people came back and said, no, this is too much like historical determinism, and it's an endorsement of communism. (laughs) Does your literary stuff, apart from Tony taking out the Tony Blair references, get messed with? Are you always fighting against policy people when it comes to doing the literary turns? you are
1: always fighting with them, yeah. I blame Richard Nixon. Nixon was the man who set up the writing and research department in the White House. And that took the writer from being central to the policy formation and the whole process into the separate and lesser discipline of being a wordsmith, an industrial term. And at that point, you were just prettifying the decisions that are made somewhere else. And the, it worked, always worked best when I, the writer, was at the centre of the process. Because then you could build in the metaphors all the way through. But you're always fighting that because it's a prosaic business. Politics is quite prosaic. It is quite boring. And in government, it becomes quite technocratic. So the, the problem you've always got is you're trying to describe welfare benefit tapers and housing benefit reform in terms which are, in some sense, poetic. And you can tell from the way your laughter that they're not intrinsically the stuff of poetry. So it's always difficult. And you've got to beware that you're not absurd. It's very easy to write things which are ludicrous quite quickly. I mean, Gordon Brown was was very good at writing ludicrously elevated pomposity, which you had to stop and say, no, (laughs) it's just comical. But it's always a problem, trying to find appropriate pitch which does elevate it and does make it rhetorical and consciously a little more poetic without disrespecting the material, which is in its intrinsically rather prosaic... I was
0: going to say parenthetically... You know, occasionally the speech where to put back at the policy direction. Am I right in remembering you telling a story that you you kind of bounced Gordon Brown into announcing several more foundation schools by simply...
1: It's exactly right. The, I mean, the bully pulpit of a prime minister is really quite powerful. And if you say things, they, they don't instantly become true. But the whole system responds to them. So it was a conference speech. In the latter days of Blair, and we were trying rather forlornly, as it turned out, to bind Gordon Brown into some of the policy direction that the Blair government was taking and one ruse we hit upon was let's just announce a new target for the number of city academies there were at the time about 70 or something I think and we had a target for 200 uh, and we're pretty sure that Brown would slow down the progress so we thought let's just announce a vast number so then everybody will speed up and he won't be able to stop it so we simply said we were going, all set to say 300 and then I think on the day of the actual speech we said oh let's make it 400 <laughs> I mean it could have been a thousand it could have been anything but, but yeah we did. we did bounce it through and it, it caused quite a sensation because everybody out there in the, in the field all the people who work in that world that's the big moment for them and they, they take it, they don't regard it as a people messing around, playing a silly game. They think it's this is absolutely an agreed new policy. We'd better crack on and do it, or fight it, or whatever they do. But, but that's, that happens quite often. Speeches, which is one of the points I make in the book, that speeches are still, and the only thing that survives from classical politics is the speech, they are still the main mechanism by which people communicate what they think. They're also the main way, we found, of how you work out what you think. Because the process of of intellectual inquiry that gets you to the point of saying something rather than not was often the point at which we'd clear away really bad ideas. I mean, obviously not always. I mean, <laughs> plenty survive into the speeches, yeah, I'm aware, yeah. but, you know, you, we, you should have seen some of the ones we discarded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe one day we will. Now, why is it, do you think, given that, you know, all politicians now have speech writers that we're still seeing hard-working families strong and stable that there's so much dead prose in speeches if we all know that it doesn't work if everybody winces if everybody turns off and if there are people at the center of things who ought to know that this doesn't work why are we still seeing so much of that
1: partly people make too many speeches so if you go back to Gladstone and israeli they spoke infrequently and they would research it deeply and they would think hard about what they were saying There's too many ministers now making too many speeches. So it's Thursday, it must be the housing conference, I'd better read out the prepared remarks. But it's also politics and the choreography of modern politics and too much attention is paid. So if a minister makes a remark which is ever so slightly different from a previous minister's remark four weeks ago on a similar topic, there's a big controversy about it. So the incentive to be dull is very high. And most ministers don't require any incentive to be dull. They just manage it naturally. But the incentive to be boring is very, very high, and they they take it. They should just speak less often. There's no need for most of these speeches. They're essentially press releases stretched out. But that's why they do it. There's also an insensitivity to cliché. A lot of people in politics just become inured to it. They wear this language like a suit of armour. And one of the things I always try and do is... Whenever I go into any organisation where they're trying to speak better, they say, let's just gather all the words and all the phrases that you would use here that you'd never use at home. Let's write them down and let's throw them away and never use them again. Let's use a different language, which is known as English. And the translation of political language into English, it's going to sound like Orwell here, is the task of the writer. And you're not always successful and you see many... I think often another problem in Britain, at least, is that the speechwriter isn't senior enough. This is certainly true in corporate life, and it's true a lot in politics too, that the writer is, as we were saying before, of the Americans, has become a, a subordinate figure. They are there to simply put into words the things which have been delivered to them. And they don't have the seniority to kick back and say, no, we can't use these terms because they're metaphors which are long since dead. And it is a serious problem. It's very, very boring these days.
0: Now, we're having this conversation on the day of Tory conference and Theresa May's speech, which I others has just been violently interrupted, looking at the, the current crop of party leaders, I'm wondering if you can kind of briefly give me a sense of how you assess their strengths and weaknesses and how you'd improve them.
1: Well, Theresa May has just, as we were preparing, done a speech which she could hardly get through because she had a terrible coughing fit which is almost bound to become a metaphor one way or the other. Either it'll be her determination to get on through, or it'll be the fact that she can't. she's literally got nothing to say. I mean, you can write it all now. Theresa May is not a, a great speaker, but she is capable of very good speeches. And the best example of this is when she was Home Secretary, she did a speech to the Police Federation, in which she was incredibly strong in telling them that if they didn't reform, she would force it upon them. And it was incredibly tough. And well, that she booted was at that she was booed <laughs> yeah. and heckled, and she she went right through it. She walked right through it, and she gained a lot of respect. And that was a personality for her as a speaker, because she lacks personality otherwise as a speaker. I mean, you need a character up there on the stage, and it's not obvious what her character is. But on that occasion, it was incredibly resolute and tough. And I'd be inclined to go for that with her i'd go for tough messages hard questions i'd pose everything as though it's very difficult which it is at the moment the european union housing market i'd pose all the tough questions in as tough a way as possible in a way that then by posing those questions in that way you are implicitly saying and i am the person who can answer them i'm not frightened of these tough questions That gives you a sort of steely determination. It's a bit Elizabeth I at Tilbury. Do you think
0: she could reinvent herself as Elizabeth I at Tilbury, having been tough and then been frit in a very visible way?
1: I think it's very difficult. I think she might not be able to, but I can't see that she's got any other option. What else can she do? Either walk away or or not. Jeremy Corbyn is a different thing altogether. I mean, Corbyn has entered this position. It's remarkable, really, which Blair had for a while and Obama had for a while which is you can briefly say anything and all critical facilities just abandoned. And it doesn't matter. People are not really listening to your content. They're just accepting what you're saying. They're going with it. At least within the hall. Within the hall, yes. Within his supporters, I mean. And within the wider Labour Party, there's a sense that he is just tapping into a truth. And for a while, the contradictions in what you say are pointed out by people, but no one believes them. So Corbyn is absolutely rife with contradictions in what he says and he's also started to compromise and cut and trim as politicians do but for the moment he's still credited with being the guy who isn't rhetorical the guy who's simply telling it like it is actually his
0: delivery's improved hasn't it?
1: he's improved a lot he's improved a a great deal it shows he can get better because when he started Corbyn had never been in politics until recently he'd been in protest and what he did typically was he'd go to a meeting at which all the audience already agreed He'd strike a position, they'd all clap and cheer... ...and then he'd repeat the position three or four times... ...and that would be the end of the meeting. That doesn't work when you're doing a set-piece speech. And at first he was very bad at it. He didn't prepare properly, he was random, he was all over the place... ...and he really didn't have anything to say, he had no driving thread. His last two conference speeches, particularly the one last week in Brighton... ...although it was too long and there there wasn't really an organising idea... Nevertheless, it was much more tightly written, and if he'd only stopped after about 25 minutes, it would have been very good. He's distinctly better. His delivery has got a lot better. His sentences have got shorter. He's slowed down. He's looking up. He's doing all the obvious things. He's clearly taken advice, and it's obviously been very good advice because he's he's improved a very great deal.
0: And I suppose, out of fairness, we should say, and Vince Cable. Well, Vince has
1: a a ready-made rhetorical personality, which which is the, the professor the sage, the teacher. I'm the man who predicted the, the financial crash, as he never tires of telling us. I'm the man who... And you, but you can use that. that. That gives you a sort of father-of-the-nation quality, which is exactly one of the only things the Liberal Democrats can do. If the Liberal Democrats aren't taking up unpopular and interesting positions from the vantage point of being a small party, then there's no point to them at all. And Vince Cable can do that with some authority. So I think he's quite an easy one to write for. And he's quite effective in his quiet way. So he's got the professor. Theresa May needs to become much more resolute. And Jeremy Corbyn, his task will be when that luster fades and when people start to really engage critically with the precise content of what he's saying, what does he do then? Can he resolve those contradictions in his thought whilst retaining the acclamation of his supporters? It's both a rhetorical question and also a political question, which is my point.
0: And a very good point it is too. Phil Collins, thank you very much. Thank you.